Okay. There was a group of ladies, and they were on a hill-walking expedition. And then as they were crossing over a particular gorge, the rope bridge that they were on snapped. And it was a horrendous moment where they all, all, there's 11 of them, they're all hanging on to this one rope hanging off the side of a cliff. Now, 11 of them were blonde, and one was a brunette. And they realized, after a very short period hanging there, <coughs> that the rope was only going to be strong enough to hold 10 of them. And one of them was going to have to sacrifice their life so the others could live. So they all start talking amongst each other, trying to decide, you know, what, 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 who should do it and why someone should die and all this. Eventually, the brunette got so frustrated that it just kept going round and round in circles. Listen, okay, 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 I'll do it. And the, everyone else was quite amazed. I said, and so she went on and gave this speech about how, do you know what? I'm just going to do to you as I wish it would be done to me. I will die in your place. I'm going to give up my life for you. Anyway, everyone was so moved. All the blondes were so moved. They just unanimously gave her a huge round of applause. (laughs) Jesus said in Matthew 7, verse 12, so whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. Some have called this statement the Mount Everest of ethics. It's probably the most famous statement that Jesus has ever made. Many unbelievers, unreligious people would claim that this would be the motto that they live by. We call it the golden rule. The the title golden rule comes from about 200 years after Jesus. There was an emperor in Rome called Servius Alexander. And a Christian told him this statement of Jesus. And he was so impressed by this statement that he had the statement made into gold and embedded in the wall of his palace. And then he commanded that all the courtrooms and the lands had this statement of Jesus in Rome on the walls of the courtrooms. It is a high-impact statement. Notice Jesus says that it sums up the law and the prophets. That this statement, so whatever you wish others would do to you, do also to them. This is the summary of the law and the prophets. In other words, don't read the Old Testament, just read Matthew 7 verse 12. It is the summary of the whole thing, according to Jesus. It sums it up, as it says in Romans 13 verses 8 to 10. Oh, no one anything except to love each other. For one who loves one another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And any other commandment are summed up by this word, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Jesus is making it clear. You know, if you love another person, if you do only to them what you would wish done to you, you're not going to kill them. You're not going to commit adultery against uh, against a person and and ruin a family. You're not going to covet because you want them to have it. You see, love not only stops you murdering, it also stops you hating. Love not only stops adultery, it also stops lust. It is the ultimate solution to the human behavior issue. Love is the fulfillment of the law. This is a radical statement Jesus made. But the question I want to ask to start with before we apply this statement to our lives is, was this a unique statement to Jesus? This statement, whatever you wish others to do to you, do also to them. I have to tell you, it appears in many, many different forms by many different people, religious leaders, philosophers, way before Jesus ever lived. 
So was Jesus' statement unique? Let me give you some examples. A pagan came to the, in, in, this is in Jewish writings, a pagan came to the, the Jewish rabbi Hillel and asked him to be taught the whole law. And Hillel repi- replied, what is hateful to yourself, do not do to, uh, sorry, do to no other. In the letter to Artaxes, uh, there is an account of Jewish scholars who were traveling through Egypt and the king of Egypt at the time asked them to have a banquet with them. And he asked them at that banquet, what is the teaching of wisdom? And one of the Jewish scholars answered, as you wish that no evil should befall you, so you should act in the same principle towards your subjects and offenders. That's within Jewish writings. And, and there are many other quotes I could give you from Jewish writings that sound very similar to what Jesus said. Within Chinese philosophy, is a quote by Confucius 500 years before Christ, where Tais Kung asked, is in dialogue with Confucius and asks Confucius, is there a word which may serve as a rule of practice for all of one's life? And Confucius answered, what you do not want done to yourself, do not do to others. Very similar to Jesus. Within Greek philosophy, we see other Greek philosophers saying things like this. This is the King, the Greek King Nicholas said this, do not do to others the things which make you angry when you experience them at the hands of other people. The great Greek philosopher uh, Epictetus condemned slavery by saying this, what you avoid suffering yourself, seek not to inflict on others. And the Stoic philosophers said this, what you do not wish to be done to you, do not do to anyone else. Also within other religions, for example, Buddhism, uh, there is a, a Buddhist uh, hymns of faith. There is a, there's a statement there that goes like this. Putting oneself in the place of others, kill not, nor cause to kill. Doing as one would be done by, kill not, nor cause to kill. Sounds like a great song. So we see in various different philosophical backgrounds, and very diff- different religious backgrounds, very similar statements to the statement that Jesus made. So the question is, was Jesus just one of many other people who said something very similar to that? Just part of the crowds. Or was Jesus' statement unique? His statement actually is utterly different from what anyone else said in all of literature. It stands apart as uniquely distinct, and let me show you how. I've given you some examples of many examples I could have given you from religion and philosophy of people saying similar things, but unanimously, they say it in the negative form, but Jesus, however, says it in the positive form. Here's the differences. Let's take the Greek Stoic philosophers, for example. What you do not wish done to you, do not do to anyone else. Do not do negative. Jesus, on the other hand, says what you wish others uh, would do to you, do also to them. It's a positive. You see, the emphasis of the religious and the philosophers down through the ages has been do not do. The emphasis of Jesus Christ here is do. You see, the statements of the religious and the philosophers are actually just common sense. But what Jesus is saying is not common sense. See, it's common sense to understand, you know what, um, if you're walking along the streets of Edinburgh, 
you don't expect people just to attack you, do you? You expect to walk along in reasonable safety. Why do you expect that? Because you understand it's common sense. If you attack someone, someone's going to attack you. So just people don't do that. You know, don't play with fire, you'll get burnt. It's common sense. People don't do that. But on the other hand, Jesus' statement isn't common sense. Jesus' statement would be applied in the way that you're walking along the street in Edinburgh and someone falls over and hurt themselves. It's not that common in Edinburgh that someone would go up and help them. That's uncommon sense, but that's what Jesus is saying. See, the thousands of people in Edinburgh who look like they're living a morally upright life, but they're only interested in themselves. And sure, they're not doing anything negative against others, but they're not living a radical life for the benefit of others. Maybe for those who are nearest and dearest to them, but certainly not for people they don't know, strangers in the streets, people from other nationalities. And that's what Jesus is requiring of us. You see, the attitude of the philosophers and the religious is saying, I must not do harm to people. But the attitude of Jesus is saying, I must do my best to help people. It's like the law requires you to drive safely, not to kill people when you're driving along, not to cause any other damage to any other drivers. But the law doesn't require you to pull over and help the person who needs a lift somewhere who's in desperate need. But that's what Jesus is asking you to do. His statement is so different. You see, this, this religious statement is actually, it's an, it actually comes from a negative root. The religious and the philosophers is speaking from a negative root, whereas Jesus is speaking for a very noble cause. The negative root that the religious and the philosophers are appealing to is the human nature to self-preservation. Don't do to someone else the thing you wouldn't want done to you. Because if you do that to them, you're going to get it back. We understand that because we understand self-preservation. We're very self-saturated, very self-centered. And that's the roots of the religious and the philosophical thoughts of many who've said this similar statement to Jesus. But Jesus' root, however, the root of it is love. It's entirely different. You see, why don't you punch the person who's wound you up? Do you not punch them because you love? Or do you not punch them because they'll punch you back? The rule is, never pick a fight unless it's someone who's weaker than you and smaller than you and they're recovering from a serious illness, all right? (laughs) That's the rule of thumb. But on the other hand, Jesus, is, Jesus says love is different. Love not only requires you not to do certain things to other people, but love requires you to do certain things to other people. Do you understand? Love isn't just doing nothing to someone. Love is actually doing something to someone. You can't be neutral in love. You see, the person who says, do you love me? If the response is, well, I've never done any, any harm, have I? It's not really the answer you're looking for. See, we talk about sin, and sin isn't always the things we do against someone else. Sin can also be the sin of omission, the things that we failed to do when the need presented itself. And I think, in the sight of God, that's just as serious. So Jesus is actually giving us 
a golden rule that is unique and stands apart from every other statement that other human beings have made in all time. Its root is love and it motivates transformation in people's lives. Let me give you five ways that I see this as applied. Firstly, this love is proactive. Many say, I live by the Sermon on the Mount. Do to others as you'd have done to yourself. You know, keep yourself to yourself. Don't do any harm harm to them. If you don't bother others, they won't bother you. That's the philosophy of our day, but that is not what Jesus is saying. You don't bother others, but you're not bothered about others. And that's a big difference. That's not the application. Many Christians seem like they're living Christian lives because they're doing no harm to other people. They're reasonably nice people. They're doing nice things to others. But you have to understand that, folks, Christ-likeness is nothing to do with doing nothing. Christ-likeness is not nice inactivity in the name of Christ. Christ-likeness is proactive, loving activity towards others. You see, the, the, the idea of inactive Christian is actually a contradiction. A true Christian, a true Christ-like Christian can't be in neutral. It says in James chapter 2, verse 26, faith without deeds is dead. It's saying that you can have a kind of faith, yeah, you believe God's there. You might even sing songs and go to church regular. It might even be that you speak with passion about this God. It might even be you have not shallow, but deep-ish commitment to this God. And yet, if you're doing zip all about it, without realizing it, maybe your faith died somewhere. Maybe it's not in live faith. True faith acts like it believes, not because it has to do anything to prove anything to God, but because that's how faith acts. Thomas Akempis Akempis said this, whoever loves much, does much. Let me ask you, what do you think the biggest outworking, the biggest expression of Jesus' statement could be? What you wish others to do to you, do also to them. What, What do you think, what could you imagine, just think for a moment, would be the biggest way you could express that towards another person? Whatever you wish someone to do to you, do also to them. Okay, let me ask it a different way. What would be your biggest wish in life? Let me flip, let me flip the coin. I missed that answer, but let me flip the coin. Conversely, what would be your biggest fear in eternity? What would be your biggest wish in life? What would be your biggest fear in eternity? Would it not be your biggest wish above all other wishes would be to be with God for all eternity in heaven? Nothing else pales, everything else pales into insignificance compared to that, right? And would it not be the greatest fear you could ever experience would be to spend eternity away from God? So let me ask you then, what's the biggest application of this? What you wished done to yourself, you're going to do to others? Let me tell you. I believe the biggest application of this was imagine you were living a life away from God. Would you not long and wish, knowing what you know now, that someone cared enough, was willing to get out of their comfort zone enough to come and talk to you about their authentic faith, 
that you so desperately need eternally. Is that not the biggest application of this truth? That if you really care for a human being, you're going to put clothes on their back, you're going to put food in their stomach, and you're going to share with them God's message of love that can offer them an eternal life. The Apostle Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 11. We try to persuade others. Verse 14. Christ's love compels us. Paul, moved by love, persuades as many people as he could in his lifetime about the reality of God, about the plan of God, about the salvation of God, and about the eternity that's on offer. That is the most loving thing you can do. If you're not sharing your faith with other people, it either indicates you don't love them or it indicates you don't really understand the message of God's love and you don't understand the reality of eternity. John Harper, a Scotsman who was traveling on the Titanic en route to Chicago, he was about to become the pastor of the famous Moody Memorial Church in Chicago but he never made it for his ordination. On the Titanic, he was one of those who died in that fatal disaster. But another Scotsman who was traveling in the Titanic who survived the disaster recalls seeing John Harper in the water clinging onto a bit of debris floating along. And as he was in the water, the icy cold water, before he drowns, he was calling out to the others who were floating in the water as well and sharing with them about the love of God and about the reality of eternity and about the salvation that God offered them in Christ. The observer noted that one particular man who was also clinging to a log in that moment prayed and accepted Jesus into their life before John Harper and that man sunk into the depths. You know, so aware of, in his own situation, so aware of the eternal predicament of those around him. It's only just a matter of time, really, whether it's the next two minutes or the next hundred years. We're going to die at some point. And there's an urgency in the air. If you love people and you really understand the seriousness and the magnitude and the incredibleness of God's love and eternity, you cannot not share. Unacceptable. Second application of this, I think, is that we understand from this verse is that God's love is unconditional. This love that we've been asked to live in is an unconditional love. Listen to what, listen, Jesus doesn't say whatever others do to you, do also to them. He says, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do to them. The fact is, you wish that they would do it to you, but they might not do it to you. The fact is, they might actually do zip all to you. And in fact, even after you do something nice to them, they might never do something in return for the rest of their lives. But nevertheless, Jesus' commandment to us is whatever you wish others would do to you, that you do to them. Now that's called unconditional love. The fact is, if you are dependent on something coming back before you express love to someone else, then you're going to struggle with this one. If you expressing love to someone else is all about them reciprocating it some way back to you, so you feel good about yourself, then you're not going to be able to do this. What fuels your love? Is it the reciprocation of other people's love towards you? 
Or is it a higher source? The only way you can live, the way Jesus is asking us to live for you, not based on what they're doing to you, but based on what you'd wish they'd do to you, is by God's power. It says in uh, Romans chapter 5, verse 5, God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit who fuels our ability to love other people when there's nothing coming back. Because that's how God loves. And it's by his spirit you can love that way. So you need God's help to love the way Jesus is saying. Let me read to you an account I read. 20 years ago, I drove a taxi for a living. When I arrived at 2.30 a.m., the building was dark except for a single light in the ground floor window. Under these circumstances, many drivers would just honk once or twice, wait a minute, and then drive away. But I'd seen too many impoverished people to depend on taxis as their, who depend on taxis as their only means of transportation. Unless the situation smelled of danger, I always went to the door. This passenger might be someone who needs assistance, I reasoned to myself. So I walked to the door and knocked. Just a minute, answered a frail elderly voice from the other side of the door. I could hear something being dragged across the floor, and after a long pause, the door opened. A woman in her 80s stood there before me. She was wearing a, a print dress and a pillbox hat with a veil pinned to it, like somebody out of a 1940s movie. By her side was a small nylon suitcase, and the apartment looked as if no one had lived in it for years. All the furniture was covered with sheets. There were no clocks in the walls, no knickknacks or utensils in the counters, and in the corner was a card box filled with photographs and glassware. Would you carry my bag out to the car, she asked. I took the suitcase to the taxi, and then I returned to assist the woman. She took my arm and walked with me slowly to the curb. She kept thanking me for my kindness. It's nothing I told her. It's just the way I would try to treat all my passengers and the way that I, I would want my mother treated. Oh, you're such a good boy, she said. When we got in the taxi, she gave me the address and asked, could you drive through the city? It's not the shortest way, I answered quickly. Oh, I don't mind, she says. I'm in no hurry. I'm on my way to a hospice. I looked out of the rear view mirror and in her eyes I saw she was glistening. I don't have any family left, she continued. The doctor says I don't have very long. I quickly reached over and shut off the meter. What route would you like me to take? For the next two hours, we drove through the city. She showed me the building where she'd once worked as an elevator operator, where she drove through the neighborhood where she and her husband had lived as newlyweds. She pulled up outside the door of a furniture warehouse that had once been a ballroom that she had danced as a girl. Sometimes she'd just get me to slow down in front of a particular building or a corner where she would just sit and stare into the darkness, saying nothing. At the first hint of sun, was, as, as it was coming up, she suddenly said, I'm tired, let's go now. So we drove off in silence to the address that she had given me. It was a low building with a driveway that passed under a portico. Two nurses came out, of the cab, uh, came out to the cab as soon as it pulled up. They must have been expecting her. I opened the boot and took out the small suitcase to the door. The woman had already been seated in a wheelchair. I don't know how much do I owe you, she asked, reaching into her purse. And I said, nothing. You've got to make a living, she said. And I said, well, there are other passengers. And almost without thinking, I bent over and gave her a big hug. She held me tightly. And the old woman, in, uh, she said to, her, said to me, 
You've given an old woman a moment of joy. Thank you. I squeezed her hands and then I walked off into the morning light. Behind me, a door shut. It was the sound of the closing of a life. I didn't pick up any more passengers that shift. I drove aimlessly through the night and through the day. For the rest of that day, I could hardly talk. What if that woman had gotten an angry driver? Or what if an, someone who was impatient in, in the taxi and didn't take the time to, to drive around because it was the end of his shift? What if I had refused to take the run? Or if I'd only honked once and then just driven away? On a quick review, I don't think I could have done anything more important in my life. We're conditioned to think that our lives revolve around some great moments. But great moments often catch us unaware, beautifully wrapped up in what others may consider as small moments. People may not remember exactly what you did or what you said, but they will always remember how you made them feel. God is calling us to love unconditionally whether anything comes back or not. Thirdly, this love is linked with our love for God. Jesus, on one occasion, was asked uh, by a scribe in Mark 12, 28 onwards. One of the scribes asked him, what commandment is the foremost of all? And Jesus answered, the foremost is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. It sounds very similar to the golden rule. Do to others what you would wish done to you. In fact, they hang the same. He says about this, he says that on this hangs all the law and the commandments. In the other statement, he talks about how that is the fulfillment of the law and the commandments. He's talking about the same thing. And notice here he says, the first commandment is love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second commandment is love your neighbor as yourself. Why does he put the two together almost in one breath? Because they're inseparable. If you love God, it will overflow in love to other people. If it doesn't, we question whether you really love God. If you love God, you will love human beings created in the image of God. You, if you understand your, God loves you and you love him, you will place huge value on other people. They're inseparable. And that's what Jesus is saying here. Not only are they inseparable, not only does your love for God fuel your love for other people, but let me say also, your love for God is expressed in the way you love other people. Let me read you this profound verse uh, from Matthew 25, 31 onwards, where Jesus talks about the sheep and the goats. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, Jesus said, with all his angels with him, he will sit on a glorious throne and all the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate the people uh, from one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, come you blessed of my father, take your inheritance the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. 
I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you a drink? Or when did we see you a stranger and invite you in or in need of clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go and visit you? And the king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. That's powerful. Your loving others is an expression of you loving God. And God takes personally when you love another person. That other person might be a criminal in prison who seems so ungodly, and yet God takes personally your love for them. Notice in the New Testament when the Apostle Paul, before he was called Paul, he was called Saul, he was persecuting the church. Jesus' answer to him was, why are you persecuting me? Jesus took personally Paul's, Saul's attacks on the church. Jesus also takes personally your acts of kindness and demonstration of love and you treating others in the way you would wish to be treated towards others. He takes that personally. What an opportunity to worship God every day of your life, not just when you gather to sing songs on Sunday. God, I worship you today by helping that person. God, I worship you today by visiting that person. Fourthly, this love considers others. Listen to what the verse says. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. Whatever you wish. <clears throat> you know, sometimes the will of God seems like a mystery to us, right? Seems kind of floaty, seems out there, beyond our grasp. You know, how on earth can I know what God wants for my life? Well, Jesus does a very clever thing here. And he makes it very clear to us what God wants us to do with our lives. What he does is he takes something that we're incredibly good at, something that we're excellent at, and something we do a lot of, and that is wishing things for ourselves. We're very good at that. And he says, okay, now that, do that for others. So we, in Christian circles, we have this, these kind of... Uh, we've got these wristbands, WWJD. What would Jesus do? So the question we're encouraged to ask is, whenever you're doing something, think, well, what would Jesus do? But that's not in the Bible. What Jesus says is, no, no, what would you want done to you? That's, that's, Jesus said, you want to know what I would do? Okay, what would you wish done to you? All of a sudden, the will of God doesn't seem so mysterious anymore. How much time do we spend contemplating considering, planning about our future, our lives, our endeavors, our family, our dreams, our possessions, our holiday, our endeavors. Do we put the same passion into considering the well-being of others, the future of others, their success, their longevity, this is radical. Jesus is getting you to consider the most important things to you, the things that you wish would be done to you, and then go make their dreams happen. This is huge. This is so different to what any other philosopher or religious leader has ever said. He's calling us to live a radical, loving life. It's absolutely incredible. 
1567, during the Reformation, as many, many thousands of people all across Europe were turning to Christ and leaving legalistic religion and coming to Christ. Lives were being changed. But at the same time as lives being changed, there was intense persecution against Christians. Many people were being uh, martyred, burnt at the stake, put in prison, and many Christians faced intense persecution. There was one particular man uh, by the name of Dirk Williamson. He'd become a Christian. And he had, because he'd become a Christian, he had been condemned to death and he knew that it wouldn't just be death, but it would be torture and death. As he was on his way to be executed, he managed to escape. And he's on the run for his life. He managed to escape and only one soldier was chasing him. It was coming towards the end of winter and there was still snow on the grounds and ice. And as he was running across the landscape and this one soldier was behind him, he came to a frozen lake and in, in desperation, he ran out across the frozen lake. As he was running, he heard the, ground, the, the, the ice cracking and groaning. And it, because it was coming to, at the end of winter, he knew the ice was thinning, it was thawing, and this was not safe. And he took big strides. And thankfully, he managed to make it to the other side and jumped onto the bank and started clambering up the bank, only to hear behind him a huge crack. And the soldier who had just been chasing him crying out in terror as he falls through the ice. <clears throat> what would you do? He turns round, Dick Williamson, he turns round and he tentatively makes his way back across the ice to where the soldier is clinging onto the edge of the ice, freezing and about to drown. And he carefully lifts the soldier onto the ice and brings him across to safety on the bank. Whatever you wish others would do to you, do also to them. This is a radical, radical call to life. Notice the other statement that I said that was almost like a parallel statement. Jesus said, Mark 12, 31, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. It's very similar, isn't it? You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Small words, huge implications. As you long for foods, you should be longing for others to have food. As you long for justice to be done in your life, you should long for justice to be done in their lives. As you long for the, the home comforts and a roof over your heads, you should, in that same way, long for it for them. But as also talks about the way you do it. With the, the creative drive that you put into doing things for yourself, you should apply that same creative drive in the way you love other people. With the same proactiveness and persistence that you apply to achieving your own goals, do you apply the exact same persistence when you're working with others to bring them into a place of success as yourself? And fifthly and finally, this love is how God loves. Matthew 20 verse 28 Jesus said this, the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Our savior is not a dictator, is not a heavy handed ruler pushing people down. 
our Savior, who demonstrates for us what true leadership is about, came as a servant. And we see Jesus in his life serving. We see him serving his family. We see his serving the poor. We see him serving the rejected. We see him touching lepers that no one dared touch. We see him hanging out with the prostitutes who were totally rejected and abused. We see him spending time with the tax collectors who were despised and hated by their own people and often rejected by their family. We see Jesus serving the multitudes by providing them miraculously with food. We see Jesus serving his disciples by giving them his pure devotion and attention. And ultimately, we see Jesus serving our worlds by being willing to die as a ransom on our behalf. As he dies on the cross, this was his ultimate serving. He died in our place, died so instead of us dying, we would have eternal life. Jesus Christ served you. You didn't, you didn't think he knew you. He knows you. And it was for you he died. It was with you in minds. The Bible says he knows the number of hairs in your heads. And it was with you in minds that he died on a cross so that you could have eternal life. Please accept his serving for you. Please accept what he's done for you. This was the ultimate serving. See, God, when entered into this human history, he died and rose again. He was not about himself. He modeled for us what life is like. He was not about himself, and yet you wouldn't find anyone as joyous as Jesus. You wouldn't find anyone as dynamic to be around as Jesus. You wouldn't find anyone who's living more a happy life, a more fulfilled, a more successful life than Jesus Christ. And yet, he wasn't into himself. He was into you. He was into those he was interacting with. And he, set, he laid his life down in serving the world. How does God love? God loves you the way he loves himself. Listen to this. Just going to end with this verse. John 17, 23. Jesus prays for his believers. May they experience such perfect unity that the world will know that you sent me and that you, Father, you, love them as you love me. How does God love you? To what degree does God love you? We know he loves us, but to what degree? God loves you to the same degree that he loves the Son. God's love for you is beyond measure. God's love for you is huge and robust. And it's only by God's power that we can live the golden rule. That in the same way we would wish it done to us, we would do it for them. Okay, let's, let's pray. take a moment in God's presence just to respond and to reflect on what you've heard and to pray back your personal response to him.
God, we're just, we just say to you, God, we're absolutely amazed that you would love us to the same degree that you love yourself. Thank you for loving us like that, God. Thank you for loving us like that. God, we are, as human beings, we are so preoccupied with self. We're so caught up with us, our agendas, our wants, our desires. But you're calling us to live like you, God, as children of God. So today we face this challenge, God. God, we say, would you help us do this? We've read in that verse earlier that that it's by the Holy Spirit that God's love is put in our hearts. God, I know what Edinburgh needs more than anything else is hundreds of people that become thousands of people that love the city with a radical love. God, I ask you by your Spirit, breathe that love into our hearts, God. By your Spirit, implant that hearts and love in our hearts because in our hearts so often all we find is selfishness God would you give us your ability Father God to love like you love for those here who have been You've been passive in your Christianity. You've not been doing anything bad, but also you've been doing not much with your life. God calls you to repent. God calls you to be active in his service. God calls you to go out of your comfort zone and to love people. faith without deeds is dead if your faith is dying make a commitment just now before God God I repent for being a passive Christian some of you here your attitude is when you see a need maybe in the church or around you your attitude is well someone else will deal with it maybe it's a leader will deal with it or a home group leader or the pastor that's not what the Bible says the Bible says whatever you wish someone would do to you you do that to others so when you become aware of a need that's God speaking to you and provoking you to do something about that. So for those of you who have put the buck onto someone else, repent now and make a choice. Do you know what? I'm going to intervene. I'm going to be proactive. And here's the biggie. Maybe you're here today and you don't know God yet. 
I know with all my heart, God loves you beyond what you could ever imagine. And when Jesus died on that cross, he did it for you to save your soul from eternal hell. And he loves you and he longs for you to come to him. And he's alive right now, risen from the dead. And he can be your savior today. If you're here and you don't know God, then why don't you right now open your heart to him and give your whole life to God. Become a follower of Jesus. Become his child. So if that's you, I'm just going to give you an opportunity right now just to pray a response to him. And as you pray this, I believe God's here and he hears you. So that's you. You want to commit your life to God, just repeat this prayer after me, just quietly under your breath. Dear Lord God, thank you for your huge love for me. I realize that because you love me so much, Lord Jesus, you are willing to die on the cross for me and rise again the third day. I needed you to do that for me, Lord. And right now I ask you to save me, to forgive me, to give me a new star. Come into my life. Make me a new person today, God. I commit my life and my future to you. Jesus, be the Lord of my life from this day forward. Thanks for hearing my prayer. Amen. Okay, just keep your eyes closed. If you prayed that prayer and you made that decision in your heart before God, then I'd love the privilege of praying for you. In order to know who I'm praying for, can you just do something very simple for me? While everyone else is just praying, and they're praying their prayers, if you're there and you prayed that prayer with me and you made that commitment, can you just identify yourself to me just for a moment by raising your hand nice and high? Just put your hand up and then I'm going to pray for you. So anyone like that today? Thank you. Anyone else? Anyone else? You prayed that prayer. Just indicate it to me just by raising your hand. Okay, Father, I thank you for this precious person today. And for anyone else who, without putting their hands up, they still prayed that prayer. I believe you heard their prayer, God. And I believe today you accept them as your child. I pray, God, let them know right now the reality of your love and power in their lives. Let this be the beginning of a new life for them, where they live with you, live for you, help them to plug into church every week so they can grow in their faith. Thank you for them in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. That one person who responded before you go, uh, I'm going to get one of the prayer team just to come and connect with you again. And they'll offer to pray with you again and give you a booklet. If anyone else prayed that prayer and didn't put your hand up, there will be a team of people at the front here offering prayer at the end of the service. Please come and tell them, one of the people at the front, I made that decision. I made that commitment. I'm going to be a follower of Christ. And they'll pray with you as well. Let's stand. We're going to worship. God's here. He's worthy of all our praise. He loves us just as he loves himself. Wow. Let's worship God.